Well, this is different. <laughs> Most preachers feel the call of God. I got a call from Wayne Cook. <laughs> what an adventure life is. I'm very honored to be able to do this today. And especially when I found out what the readings were, because I really didn't know what I was going to talk about. But then I saw the verse that Betty just read about living a life worthy of the Lord, and I knew this would be my topic. As most of you know, my husband Ross died six months ago. It was actually six months ago today, January 14. This is also um, approximately the date when I unexpectedly retired from my work as a freelance copywriter. So my life completely changed and I had to do a lot of thinking and praying about what that would mean. But I don't want you to have to wait for a crisis. You can change your life, you can live a worthy life right now, and I know you do. I know you do because all of us have been to many memorial services and we know that some lives are better lived than others. So in this passage, we learn from Paul how God wants us to do that. So if we can put up Colossians 1, we're going to go through this today. The purpose of the first 14 verses of this letter is to introduce Paul to introduce himself to the people of Colossae. He has never been there. He doesn't know them. He knows of them. And he is in prison in Rome when he writes to them. So he begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. It's fascinating to me that business letterhead hasn't really changed in the last 2,000 years. We have Paul's name, we have his title, he's an apostle, he, we have his credentials, you know, like PhD, except for he is by the will of God, and we have who he works for. He works for Christ Jesus. So he goes on in verse 3 to say, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we prayed for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about what you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So Paul is grateful. He's grateful for the people of Colossae, the believers there, about their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for God's people, and their hope. And I think many of us are familiar with these three words being tied together. In another passage, famous passage of Paul's when he, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, when he says, um, the first part of it is, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So this chapter is truly poetic, and at the very end it says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now yes, it's true the greatest of these is love, but what Paul is saying in Colossians is that nothing happens without hope. It's the foundation. Faith and love spring from hope. You can want something very much, but if you don't have hope that you can get it, you won't even try. I, for example, would love to be a prima ballerina. I love but I have no hope for that, so I don't take ballet lessons. 
We do have hope, though. We have hope. It's stored up for us in heaven like a treasure. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, boy, I sure hope it doesn't rain during the service because it would get very loud. <laughs> or, I hope you feel better soon, which you may sincerely hope for, but you don't know. Our hope is based on God's own promises. We have hope. And it's the reason for our faith and for our love. Our hope is in heaven and our hope is for heaven. We want heaven. So Paul is thankful that these Colossian believers have faith, love, and hope. He goes on in verse say to six, I should say, to say in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, that is the gospel, and truly understood God's grace. So here, Paul emphasizes that the Colossians are not alone. They are part of a great movement that really has only been going on at this point for about 30 years. He's writing this in like AD 62, 63. Um, and it's bearing fruit and it's growing and it's been heard throughout the world. Now you're part of something incredible is what he's saying. And we, Lakeside Presbyterian Church, we are part of something incredible because this has been going on for 2,000 years. And we are part of a worldwide movement of the church. I think that's pretty exciting. So Paul continues, you learned it being the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. And that word servant can even be interpreted slave, a slave of Christ, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love and the spirit. Paul tells these Colossians that he knows about their faith and love because his good friend Epaphras has told him. Paul doesn't know these people personally. He's writing from prison. And Epaphras apparently was imprisoned with him. He might even be the person who delivers this letter to the Colossians. I don't know, but people suggest that that might be a possibility. What if Lakeside Presbyterian Church had an Epaphras? What if we had a go-between from an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Would we be commended for our faith and for our hope and for our love? Would our apostle be inspired to pray for us? Like Paul does starting in the next verse, in verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. I find that really moving. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So Paul asked God to fill the Colossians with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. But he's not talking about make them brilliant, you know, give them book learning. He's talking about knowledge of God's will so that the Colossians will know what they should be doing. He is asking of this, this of God, so in verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. This is the point, living a worthy life. So if you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, you can live a worthy life. The will of God is about the purpose, the whole, full purpose of God. It's not the small things like, should I wear my green shirt or should I wear my blue shirt? It's about how you conduct your life and then please him in every way. So let's think about how we please people. To please someone suggests to me an attitude of mind that anticipates every wish. For example, 
when it gets to be around 11 o'clock today, you guys are going to be hungry, and so we'll stop, and <laughs> we'll anticipate your wishes, and we will feed you. If you're walking along with a friend and she seems tired, you will say, should we stop for a minute? You anticipate their wishes. Some people are natural people pleasers, and the people I'm thinking about are dogs. <laughs> did, you, did you know that dogs focus more on people than they do on other dogs? They've, they've been bred that way. It may be hard to believe when you're pull, being pulled on that leash, <laughs> when they want to sniff Fluffy's butt over there, but they really are people pleasers. I have scientific proof. I recently read a wonderful book called The Grace of Dogs. It's by a Lutheran theologian. Yes, it's a book on the theology of dogs. Perfect. <laughs> and let me quote here. In one study done at a shelter, it was discovered that on average it took several days for a dog to connect to another dog, yet in comparison it took just hours for a shelter dog to connect to a human being. And this connection with a human being was almost always stronger and preferred by the dog. Nearly every time given an option, the dog chose to be with a human over a fellow dog. Well, this works in reverse, too. I know a number of people who would prefer to be with dogs than with people. But I'd like to suggest that we think of God the same way our dogs think of us. If our goal is to please God, we will. When we know our dog is trying to please us, we are pleased, right? And we can overlook a whole lot of problems when we know our dogs love us and want to please us. This is God's will for us. It's not something scary, it's something good. Um, Paul, in another letter to the Romans, says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, God's will ought to be pleasing to us. It's a mutual thing. I find that really exciting. So, moving on. <laughs> if you want to live a life worthy of the Lord that's pleasing to him, you'll see three results, and that continues in the next verse. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's the first result. But what fruit is that? In another letter of Paul, I'm going to quote from every letter of Paul today, and <laughs> to the Ephesians, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light, the fruit of the light, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord, pleases the Lord. Oh, Paul, you are so consistent. Fruit is not necessarily about a harvest, right? You think of fruit, you think, I will see great success, but that's not what this fruit is. Fruit is righteousness, it's in you. Goodness in you, truth in you, not external success, if you're working in God's will. In another place, in Galatians, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who wouldn't want that kind of life? Who doesn't want a life filled with joy, filled with love? I know I do. 
So how do we get in? <laughs> well, to bear fruit, it implies that there's a seed, a seed that's planted. Now, I'm no gardener. <laughs> not very good at that, but I do know that a seed is something that's kind of small and insignificant and not necessarily that valuable. You can throw it away easily. I throw away tomato seeds a lot, right? I, um, you can eat it, you can eat that seed, or you can invest it, you can plant it and make it productive. Other things in our lives are these seeds, the things like money. You can consume money, you can spend it, or you can waste it, you can tuck it away somewhere and not do anything with it, or you can invest it. We all have invested money, I think. Time, you can kill time, you can lose time, you can invest your time. Emotions, emotions like love, like anger even, like guilt or grief, those can be invested as well. You can be consumed by them unproductively also. I see that by a lot of people all the time, and by people in this case, I mean me. Our thoughts are an investment, or a potential investment, a seed. Remember that verse in Ephesians that I read a minute ago, it says, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Well, some of our thoughts are just thoughts. They're not true. I tend to think too much about things that aren't good or righteous or even true. I feel bad about something that happened to me and I dwell on it. I regret things I've done or haven't done. This is not what I should be investing my thoughts in. Here's what I can do and here's what you can do. In his letter to the Philippians in chapter four, verse eight, Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, it's quite a list. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. And I suggest that we all think about the fruit that God wants us to bear and what seeds we're planting. So, that was result number one. I won't go so long about result number two or three. <laughs> Paul gives us a second result at the end of verse 10, growing in the knowledge of God. Well, that sounds pretty cool. I would like to know God. It's sort of trippy, even, seeing God. Well, if, for example, you ran into somebody that you've always admired but didn't know, wouldn't you want to get to know them? You admire them. I think of somebody like, I don't know, Albert Einstein or Mother Teresa. If you ran into those people, wouldn't you want to get to know them? Well, I'm sorry, but they're both dead. But there are living people who are admirable. I, the one that came to my mind when I was pre preparing this is Warren Buffett. He is an admirable man. He is very smart, he's very successful, and he's very generous. And if I saw him at Cafe Grano, I would sit down next to him and try to talk to him. However, Warren Buffett is never going to be at Cafe Grano. And even if I went to Omaha, I'm not likely to run into him. But the most admirable person of all, Jesus Christ, is living He's available, and he wants to have a relationship with you. That is very, very, very cool. So how do you get to know God better? 
If you want to get to know someone, a person who's in your life better, what do you do? You hang out with them, you spend time with them, you talk with them, you listen, we open up to each other, we share interests, they share their, your, their interests with you, you don't put on a different personality with them, you're not fake. We hear their concerns and we do our best to help them, don't we? If we really want to get to know someone. Isn't it true that you get to know people better when you work side by side with them? I think that's what God is asking us to do. He wants us to work side by side with him. He has a mission. So, then there's the third result of living a worthy life, and that is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. So now we've made up our minds to live a worthy life and to bear fruit and to try to please God in every way, and we're growing in our knowledge of him and what he wants us to do. We need strength to do it. And not just that enthusiastic initial push. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to run five miles today. You need more than that. You need strength that endures and that produces patience. It's not always immediate. And I think this ties back to our brief discussion about hope at the beginning of this chapter. You won't endure if you don't have hope. You can be, as we say, as strong as Chuck Norris on spinach. Yet, if you don't have hope, you won't persist. This is actually great news. It doesn't all depend on you. God has plenty of strength for all of us. He also has all that hope stored up for us in heaven. Awesome. In Philippians, Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, I realize that some of us don't feel all that strong right now, particularly. There are people I know in this congregation who have children or grandchildren whom you love deeply who seem to have lost their way. This is painful. This is difficult to live through, and you don't know what to do. You may be tortured by your own depressive or regretful thoughts. You might be in chronic pain from an illness or an injury. You don't feel all that strong. But Paul at least reminds us here that God cares and that he wants to give us strength and patience, and endurance. God is stronger than any of our issues. So, in verse 12, Paul circles back to thanking God, but he's not thanking God for the Colossians, he's thanking God on behalf of the Colossians. He says, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is key. Forgiveness removes our sins from us, so there are no longer barriers between us and God. You know that if you have trouble forgiving someone for something, there's a barrier there. If someone has trouble forgiving you for something, there's a barrier there. But we can have forgiveness from God. There needs to be no barrier between us and him, and I find that fantastic. That's just the best news ever. So, to sum up all these 14 verses here, 
This is an introduction to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it tells us that God wants us to live a worthy life, a life that pleases him, and that's the life we all want. Love, joy, peace. We do this by making a faith commitment to pleasing God. We ask him to forgive our sins, and we ask him to have a growing, life-changing relationship with us. It means fruitfulness, so let's be sure we plant the right seeds. It means growth and godly knowledge, so let's continue to spend time with God and work side by side with him. And we know we can do it because we are empowered by God. We can count on him to help us. Amen.